This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Arts. I'm your host today, Kaveh Rafi. Tom Braden, who served as a MoMA's Executive Secretary from 1948 to 1949 before joining the CIA in 1950, in an article titled, I'm Glad the CIA is Immoral, which published in the Saturday Evening Post in May 20, 1967, noted that American art, quote, won more acclaim for the U.S. than John Foster Doyle's or Dwight Eisenhower could have brought with a hundred speeches, unquote. To this end, the U.S. government, through institutions such as MoMA, strived to perpetuate an image of American art that would embody the ideology of free enterprise and U.S. democracy, intended as a direct opposition to Soviet social realism, abstract expressionism, was called by Nelson Rockefeller as a free enterprise painting. Closely associated to rising prominence of abstract expressionism in the post-war era, was the art critic Clement Greenberg, who was an editor of the Partisan Review, which was a non-communist left publication bankrolled by the CIA during the 1950s and the 1960s. It has been consistently claimed by the scholars such as Max Kozlov, Eva Cockcroft, and Serge Gilwell, among others, that Greenberg, the great advocate of for medium specificity, paved the way for the ideological and political recuperation of avant-garde art. In spite of Greenberg's denunciation and some recent criticism, these allegations have become the unquestionable and ubiquitous conclusion about abstract expressionism and Greenberg's aesthetics. My guest today, Daniel Newfitu, in his provocative monograph of uh, uh, abstract expressionism and Greenberg titled Reading Abstract Expressionism, Clement Greenberg and Cold War, published in 2022 by Bloomsbury Press, argues, however, that Greenberg's criticism, in fact, encapsulates the very reason why abstract expressionism opposes the market marketization market uh, under the aegis of the U.S. 
imperialism and the Cold War politics to which it was deployed. Rereading abstract uh, expressionism is a very good overview of these discussions, which bring in different viewpoints and sites and comments Greenberg's critics as well as his supporters. This book contributes significantly to the study of abstract expressionism and does a great deal to overcome the one-sided reception, particularly since the 1980s. The book marks the case, make the case that the only way to rethink abstract expressions is to reread Greenberg. Nirfitu received his PhD from the Goldsmiths in 2018. He's the author of the book, Good Day Today, David Lynch Destabilizes the Spectator 2012. He has published widely in both the popular and academic press. His recent journal publication, The Flesh of Negation, Adorno and Melo Ponte contra Heidegger, published in Philosophy and Social Criticism, January 2022. He is currently also a lecturer in Critical and Cultural Studies at the University of uh, Northampton and, and has previously taught at the University of Edinburgh, the University of Applied Science and Arts, Northwestern Switzerland, and the Fordham University London Center. Hello, Danielle. Thanks for joining me today on the New Books in Art podcast. Thank you. Uh, let's start off by uh, talking uh, about your background uh, and your decision why you write perhaps one of the most uh, contentious topics of American modernism. Um, okay, so this was my uh, PhD thesis originally. Originally, um, I, I later got a fellowship from the Getty um, to go to Greenberg's papers and expand into a book, hence why there's a lot of material in here that hasn't really been um, written on before so much. I mean, there's, there was a, a recent, not so recent anymore, but there was a recent monograph by uh, Caroline A. Jones, Eyesight Alone, which is the only other as substantive monograph on, on Greenberg's thought in which she covers a lot of the unpublished stuff that I cover. But generally, you know, I write on a lot of stuff there. And that, that, was, that was compiled uh, afterwards. But the, the, the core of the uh, book, as it were, uh, was written as a PhD thesis. And um, for the question of why, um, uh, I feel like I've always, um, I've always liked abstract expressionism. I mean, a lot of people like, but it's not, a, <laughs> it's not a very strange thing to like, right? It's the most popular art, art um, movements in art and sold out shows every time they do one. But, you know, um, I've always been a big fan. Ever since a small child going to, going to, you know, galleries with my mum and stuff. I've always been a, been a fan of, um, Abex painting, and I guess when I when I got into um, like leftist theory, etc., um, I always um, thought there was, you know, um, I always it didn't strike it didn't strike me as 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 um, sufficient this this prevalent critique. It didn't strike me. As, and um, it always, I always thought it was, it didn't really address the works themselves. I mean, and perhaps it's, perhaps it's ironic, this is my critique, because I don't really spend much time addressing the works 
themselves in my book, but I think I do provide a model by which the viewer might address the works themselves, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, especially like, yeah. Uh, the one thing is, especially about these uh, writings about abstract expressionism, what you called in the book uh, by uh, the revisionist historians, uh, perhaps. One thing that really strikes me is uh, they almost ignore the work. Uh, there's not much. They never do, and if they do address the work, some of them did, like like Michael Michael Leher, Le Le who wrote a book, um, which I don't really address that much. It's not entirely relevant in terms of the CIA stuff. It, in terms of the cooptation stuff, it's more kind of an argument of how and, and, and certain like like um, the, the vision of Homo economicus, the vision of, of, of American individualism, is manifest in the paintings, right? Um, but even he, even he, when he talks about them, it's very it's very one to one correspondence, right? It doesn't actually. They never really get into the paintings as paintings. They never, they, you never get a real fulsome account of the artworks. You just, just if they do talk about the artworks, it's generally to say that um, you know this means this in quite a crude way. I feel it's 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 this. There's actually there's actually a quote from Rosalind Krauss in who I also take to task in the book at one point, but there's a, uh, where is, I'll find it. It's, um, so she's talking about, she's talking about Michael Leher and she says, uh, 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 um, I should have been more prepared to wait. Um, she says, yeah. So she says, um, uh, Michael Leher, but I think this kind of holds for all of them. She says his reading of abstract expressionism is resolutely representational, based on an art historical model of intentionality, whereby artists express an idea through pictures of it. Right. So um, when they do, they they rarely refer to the paintings themselves, especially Surgical Bow, who wrote the most like the most ubiquitous. Uh, book on this, how New York sold the idea of modern art. That is, that's going to be in any syllabus where you discuss abstract expressionism. I feel with any kind, any kind, any kind of social history of art bent whatsoever. I feel that's going to be in any syllabus. And that, but not only, this is as an aside. But Gulbo also, um, it's not a great work of art history. <laughs> just uh, um, he gets lots of wrong, but we won't get into that here. But just in terms of the addressing of the paintings themselves, um. Yeah, when they sometimes they don't even bother, but when they do, or so they don't, they, they take it as, as a given that that they, that they um, you know, um, display in, in, in a, a model of individuality which is which somehow corresponds to um, the the individual of capitalism. Um, but um, but when they do, it's very much like a very crude mode of reading art where this means this, rather than any kind of interrogation of the internal dynamics of the work, which is what I try to do. But I try to do it in a way where, way where, you know, way where I'm giving the autonomy to the reader of the book to go back and address the paintings themselves. I think that's that's generally what this book is. Because I, I feel this book is, it is a work of art history and, and art theory, but also I think I want it to be a book both about making and viewing art, right? So I have, I have, I think, I think there's roughly, um, after the first couple of chapters, I have, I have, let's say, um, 
um, two, uh, the, the, the first chapter is about, about um, Greenberg's Trotskyism, which we can talk about, maybe talk about in a minute. I think that that's the plan. But um, so chapter two, or at least the second half of chapter two and the third chapter are about making up. I feel they're, they're very much about making up. And, um, and also, also to an extent, the, the, to an extent, the, um, the fifth chapter, but then the fifth chapter and the sixth chapter are about encountering art, like viewing art, I feel like. So I feel like, um, and we can maybe talk about this as well in the future, because I do extend these insights in the epilogue to contemporary art, um, but it, it is a kind of, um, in a sense, it is, yeah, it's a kind of um, a guide to making and viewing art in a way which is inimical to um, the identity thinking of capitalism. What do you want to first with the identity thinking of capitalism, right? I mean, in this sense, it's also it's also a a a. I think it also provides quite a light introduction to Adorno's aesthetics as well. I think I think I'd, um, not so much Merleau-Ponty. I feel like my, my, my reading of Merleau-Ponty is far more tendentious, but my reading of Adorno, I think, is quite orthodox. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I would. So where where was I going here? Yeah, so I was I was I say that like. Where, whereas the the revisionist historians, you know, the, the people who who have who have uh, made this this argument about uh, abstract expressionism, which has become ubiquitous, well, they don't pay much attention to the painting themselves. I think I've tried to write an account which, um, while it, I might not dwell too long on the things that pay themselves either, although I do at times, you know, I've got a, I think you know I, I talk about a few specific paintings. Um, I feel I'm more trying to cultivate a modes of encountering art, um, a mode of encountering and making art. And also a reading of, of encountering art, which is also a retracing of its making, right? So, which emphasizes how art is inimical to um, the, 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 the identity thinking of the status quo. Um, uh, yeah, and, and how Abex, despite the fact, despite the fact that um, they, of course, serve as you know speculative commodities per excellence, <laughs> like um, that's another story, right? That's another story. Um, they do provide a kind of moment wherein these dynamics in art really crystallize. I feel and become almost schematic, but not quite. Right? These, these dynamics, we, we will talk about, but these, these dynamics in art, this kind of, this kind of. Um, this kind, this kind, this kind of being being guided by the object, as it were, rather than imposing um, concepts upon the object, which is the central thesis of the book, right? To an extent, yeah. I uh, think is, in the yeah. chapter on on, on Kant's aesthetics, you, you you mentioned that specifically about the relation of uh, reflex uh, reflexive art judgment, which was I was really curious mm -hmm. uh, about that chapter. Okay, uh, but we can talk about that chapter. Moving, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. We, should, we, should we start with that chapter, or should we start with the beginning? No, of the book? I, I was, I was. I mean, you you started with really great, uh, I think, points of view. Specifically, that's why the book very much uh, was fascinating for me. Is this dialectic between autonomy, heteronomy? Mm -hmm. It's not like reducing art to this heteronomy, which you see in most of this work of revisionist. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just reductive in this sense. It's mm -hmm. just. Uh, you lose art. It's, yeah, it's you become, lose art. Yeah, you lose art. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, 
and and that's very much stood out to me uh, when I was reading the book, and I like that. Um, but but the book, but in the book also you mentioned like many interesting artworks. But I'm curious, like uh, you 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 didn't expand much on like formal analysis on on on, on much of the works, except a couple of, uh, works that I, I remember. For, for for example, you mentioned John Mitchell. Yeah, the Mandres. That's a really good work. That is. Yeah, I like. And uh, I think the two the the two I talk about to. I think to a great extent are the Joan Mitchell one and the the Norman Lewis one, right? The this, yeah. Um, two, which, two I like, which I like very much. It's uh, good, yeah. But they're, 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 also, they're also they're also two, of course, they're two artists who were until now neglected because he's black and she's a woman. So mm -hmm. they were always they were always neglected. Then um they well, she was also too young to really be included. Well, maybe not, but um, they often weren't included in these tour exhibitions. I mean, Norman Lewis definitely wasn't, but I don't think so. The ones, the, the exhibitions that were in question, in the question of it being co-opted by the by the by the powers invested in the U.S. establishment, right? Um, so yeah, that, I, I thought that yeah, um, but yeah. But as I, as I said, the reason why I don't talk too much about the paintings themselves is because I don't want to run the risk of making them um, into, some kind, into some kind of um, emblems for an idea um, where, where in the, the, the meaning lies outside of themselves or wherein they can be exchanged for a discursive meaning, which then exhausts the work, um, right? Because the, the closest I get to that is um, the Motherwell painting. If you remember, I talk about um, Robert Motherwell painting in chapter two, where I talk about um, wall painting, what's it called? It's called, um, it is called, um, it's called wall paint, wall painting. Well, anyway, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Robert Motherwell painting, wherein um, it has a series of, of um, biomorphic kind of shapes, um, which um, gradually get bigger. It's kind of like they're whispering, they're whispering something to one another. And then the last one is this big quivering mass. And I talk about how, um, right, so I talk about how, in that chapter, I'm basically talking about how abstract expressionist canvases um, seem to say something which is um, inexplicable from what they are, right? So, so th th they are, they are, um, they are examples of, you know, the examples of, in the words of Jay Bernstein, who I who I cite to a large extent, who's reading of Adorno, I I, I follow. Um, they are sensuous sensuous particulars that seem to have um, they have meaning, which nevertheless cannot be extracted from them and erected as a second as, as a second positivity. Right? They are they are um, Things which mean in and of themselves, or seem to mean in and of themselves, yeah. And this is this is this this goes against the 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 the, the governing reification of the world, wherein you know everything is only significant insofar as um, in terms of exchange value, right? Ultimately, that's the, the ultimate reigning um, value of heteronomy, right? But, but like, so so. I, I, illustrate, I illustrate this sense of Abex canvases 
as something which have undeniable, um, undeniable cognitive significance, which nevertheless cannot be extracted from them or paraphrased in this image of this Robert Motherwell painting, um, where this, 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 this series, these series of shapes seem to be saying something to one another and, and, and full, of, full, of, full, of, full of meaning, yeah, which cannot be extracted. So that, that's, and that's, that's as far as I go um, in, in, those, in those terms, right? Um, but yeah, I think, I think I've, gone, I've gone, gone a bit of a weird tangent. I, think, I feel like we should get back to... Sure, but yeah, maybe, maybe we can, we can uh, start off talking about the chapter one, uh, about your reading. Uh, of, oh, wait, of, it's wall painting number three. I found it in the book. Wall painting number three. That's the, so if anyone wants to Google that. Well, uh, yeah, number three. I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so yeah, come back to my, to my question, uh, specifically about like, you, you, you read, is specifically the Ellie Greenberg or like the Greenberg in the two towards a new Lacan or avant-garde and kitsch through the lens of Trotsky uh, and Trotsky's view of art. And you 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 you've done a great job, I think, and push back against some of these revisionist views that arguing that that's at the end of the day, uh, you know, gradually uh, Greenberg uh, right departed from. Trotsky to the, this art for art's sake and it's completely depoliticized or, or, or come up with this apolitical artwork, you know, easy to uh, co-opt by, 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 by the U.S. State Department and so forth. Um, could you just tell us more about uh, your argument in chapter one and about the, the relationship in terms of the thinking? Greenberg didn't much... Talk about Trotsky. Uh, it's, it's it's interesting uh, that he he mentioned uh, uh, as far as I'm, 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 I know um, not much of the Trotsky. Uh, but uh, if you can tell us more about this connection, okay, well, he didn't he yeah. didn't mention Trotsky, but he was an he he was an avowed Trotskyite. Um, I think as as I as I write about in that in that chapter, right? Um, um, if you go look at his papers. There's, you know, there's a law in it about, uh, there's, there's a law in it betraying his devotion to Trotsky. I mean, the only person he actually refers to in either of those essays is Marx, right? Very briefly, very briefly. Um, he says, uh, at one point we should quote Marx word for word. He says, but um, doesn't reference Trotsky explicitly at all, but he was, he was, he was a Trotskyist and, no, and not only was he a Trotskyist, but, um, so this, um, this, these two essays, Avant-Garde and Kitsch, and Towards a New L.R. Kuhn, uh, they were published in Partisan Review, uh, which as you earlier mentioned in the introduction, he later briefly became editor of, um, um, and which was subsequently funded by the CIA in the 50s, which is a long time after this. This is, you know, this is, this is the, we're talking about the late 1930s now, 1939, 1940, these two essays, but um, they were later funded by the CIA. Um, when they were both, when, when part of the review was both less radical and also when the CIA was, you know, funding everything that wasn't in support of the Soviet Union, right? So this is, I, I, I don't, you know, but, so he publishes these two, um, he publishes these two essays in partisan review, um, and um, 
Well, I think the best way, the best way, the best way to um, talk about this is to talk about to talk about the two essays, the two essays which Trotsky writes in Partisan Review, um, in Partisan Review, before the publication of um, Towards the New Al Kun and Avangard and Kitsch, right? So um, in 1938, like just prior to Greenberg's two essays, Trotsky had written two pieces for Partisan Review, um, one under his own name entitled Art and Politics in Our Epoch, and um, a manifesto for a proposed um, international federation for independent revolutionary art, co-authored with Andre Breton and, and signed by Diego Rivera in place of Trotsky, who was at the time a fugitive, um, but his identity was no open secret to Greenberg's milieu at the time. Right, so um, in all of these essays, Trotsky argues that art is most politically revolutionary when it is not subordinated to the need of politics. Um, he claims that uh, true art cannot tolerate orders um, by its very essence and becomes a strong ally of revolution by remaining faithful to its laws. Um, uh, now, by the late 1930s, this argument is framed in relation to the way in which Stalin was mandating socialist realism, right? Um, which, of course, glorified the Soviet Union. However, Trotsky had been making this argument since the early 20s. Um, it is writing on art, which set him against the prolet cult. So um, the prolet cult was an organization of proletarian culture, which rejected bourgeois art, bourgeois art abstractly. But for Trotsky, you know, um, he thought not. He thought he thought that art should internalize the art of the past, and and also that it just it it shouldn't be made. But art didn't have to portray workers struggling to be radical. Rather, it had to be say true to its own laws, right? Its, its own laws. Um, and um, so, in the early twenties, he's already arguing this, and then. In the, late, in the late 30s, when he's on the run from Stalin, he maintains this opinion, listing the lineage of naturalism, symbolism, futurism, cubism, and expressionism, I think, in um, keeping the flame of art, which is inherently united to revolution alive. Um, however, he claims that this art is in crisis because the bourgeoisie was no longer willing to support it. Um, he says, because I think he says, because it feared superstitiously every new word, for it was no longer a matter of corrections and reforms for capitalism, but of life and death, if I remember clearly. Yes, he's, he says that, because um, he thinks that, um, you know, he thinks that world revolution is still just around the corner, right? Um, so then in this, in this essay, he calls for the founding of the International Federation of Independent Revolutionary Art, along with Breton, to continue to support this supposedly inherently revolutionary art. Um, now, how does Greenberg develop Trotsky's theories in his essays, right? So, um, as, we, as I said earlier, um, well, he doesn't mention Trotsky. He was a enthusiastic Trotskyist at the time. Um, you know, and, and there's lots, as I said, there's lots of evidence in his papers. Um, and there's also, there's also just evidence from his friends, like, you know, the, 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 he was a, um, an avowed Trotskyite at the time. And in Avant-Garde and Kitsch and towards a new Alakun, he basically develops Trotsky's ideas. Um, similarly to Trotsky, he argues for the continuation of the lineage of avant-garde art. However, he makes it more specific than Trotsky 
and um, he identifies it through a dialectic wherein representational elements are negated and medium-specific elements are emphasized, right? Um, now, um, which is something that Trotsky actually emphatically um, opposes kind of when he says, uh, he says something like, um, he's not advocating a so-called pure art which um, lends itself to extremely impure ends, right? But he also doesn't really, doesn't emphatically oppose abstract art, right? And we might talk about this later, right? Because, because for him, it always seems to be the art um, of revolutionary art is somehow objectivating and appealing to subjects on corporeal kind of um, suppressed level, a level which identity thinking, the capital, um, Either dismisses or, or you know, or serves with 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 false need with with false needs and false satisfactions. Right? This is this is, this is yeah under capitalism, um, the ultimate macrostructural macro determinant is private profit, and human need is not determinant. So you know there is this kind of idea of art as uh, addressing a suppressed suppressed human need, or or being the model of a logic which would serve. Um, Human need in a very mediated way, right? And this is this is Adorno's argument as well. We'll get to that later, hopefully, maybe. You know, but anyway. So <clears throat> uh, Greenberg makes um, a far more schematic argument, but crucially, crucially, um, in these early essays, he argues that this art provides a threat to capitalism and calls for its preservation by socialism um, because the bourgeoisie was abandoning it. Right, because um, it got too inaccessible, you know. And um, he doesn't say how um, this art provides a threat to capitalism uh, in decline, but he claims it does. Um, and I talk about in that chapter um, how um, he's quite, he's quite, um, he's not very clear on this, on this, on this point of how it at all, and you can make more than one reading. Um, now, of course, in my book, as I've kind of made clear already, I argue that you can make the reading that it, it's, um, you know, opposes capitalism because it provides a model of living and feeling which is inimical to capitalist reification, right? This is, this is, or, you know, it, it's, um, provides the, the logic of a world which would be determined by human need and humans other, right? You know, we'll back up that as well, but you know, this is a, this is a, this is a dialectical, dialectical logic wherein, um, you know, the, the, where, where, wherein the world would be reproduced um, in a way which does justice to both inner and outer nature, as Adorno would call it, right? But um, in uh, at this at this uh, um, contemporary to these early essays, um, there seems to be another argument on Greenberg's mind, which is um, that um, that um, avant-garde art opposes capitalism because you need it would that, that, that um, to actually appreciate it requires. An amount of free time to cultivate your sensibilities requires an amount of free time which is not 
possible under capitalism. Now, I think this is just an idea that sounded nice to him, sounded good to him, sounded clever to him, right? Because if you actually read, this is my argument about, if you actually read his, 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 what, what, his criticism always, but even, even, even at this early, early moment, um, what he sees in abstract expressionism, well, not, abstract, not, not abstract expressionism yet, but what he sees in modernist art is an art wherein, you know, wherein, wherein wherein its immediacy is key. This, that's not, not an immediate immediacy, but, you know, it, um, so there's, there's actually a quote here. There's a quote um, from one of the drafts of Towards a New Al Alcun. This is a discarded bit from one of the early drafts where he says that um, modernist arts, quote, affective power makes itself felt to the extent to which the work of art is designed to play upon the sense for its own sake rather than communicate through it. The more powerful the effect is of a work of art, the more immediate claim it makes upon the sense which perceives it and the less it calls upon the associative and the rational. The purest art is then the greatest art, since by concentrating so much of itself um, in its effect upon sense, it moves us most strongly. And the purity of a work of art corresponds to the degree to which it discards the imitative and relies upon the sensuous for its effect. So that does not sound like an experience which needs to be um, learned. It sounds like an experience which maybe needs to be unlearned. You know, it's, 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 but, but I, I don't think that um, this idea that, that appreciating art is like learning Latin um, holds, right? So yeah, I feel like for him, like the, the, the most current way we can argue that um, it opposes capitalism is um, in the sense that this is this is an art whose um, which provides a um, kind of you know an experience, an experience wherein one is guided by the object and then in turn um, guided by the object and apprehended on levels which are um, not macrostructurally determinate in everyday life, right? Which are um, suppressed, affected, dismissed um, in the reproduction of the status quo. Um, all right. So, 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 yeah. Where was I? Right. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So, so here, here we have. Um, um, yeah. I get. So, what? What, what was I? What was, that was the. That, that was the. Um, the parallel between Trotsky and, and Greenberg. Right there. Yeah. yeah. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
was a that was a great uh, you know um, summary uh, of both cha of chapter, but the, the whole project I think as an entirety, uh, and it makes sense to me. Although I'm I'm reading most along the line of more Kantian aesthetics uh, about the feeling intersubjectivity, uh, but but you you brought more Adorno into the conversation in the text. I want to come back to Adorno because I, th I think the Adorno is, is really key to unpack uh, your argument. But something is interesting in 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 the book you mentioned. Just uh, if uh, we can just briefly touch on that. Uh, was this witness being only 1954? Uh, I didn't know about that, and but it was really fascinating for me that uh, they show you know Ben Shah, this you know, preeminent social realist, just next to the Kuni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, as I say in, in yeah in, in the in the in the book, as I talk about in the book, there's actually a really good article on the Ben Shah. Um, which by Francis K. Pohl, this, this artist drawing Francis K. Pohl, um, where Pohl um, talks about how, you know, this is this is this is this is an argument which is she made it, she made it kind of contemporary to the to the to the original historians, and it's an argument which makes the opposite argument than they do. Because a lot of the original historians, especially David and Sio Shapiro, um, seem invested in social realism. Social, in, in social realism, right? So, so they're quite sore that Abbott's got so big, and then they make an argument, well, Abbott's got big because um, it's so status quo. Well, she makes the complete opposite argument that um, Ben Sham was co-opted because, um, because um, he doesn't actually criticize capitalism, but rather cap criticizes capitalism, capitalism's epiphenomena. The, the hard the hardships the struggles of working people right um, it can be easily um, exhibited in a way which exemplifies how you know um, in America we care for the poor you know that's the kind of the gist right that was that was that was the gist of why it was um, which you you can read in a in a in a very Adornian sense right because um, he makes the distinction between art which um, criticizes capitalism, capitalism's effects, or, or this, this or that thing in capitalism, and then art which, which criticizes the fundamental logic of capitalism, right? So this is, this is a, um, so yeah, so you had this Biennale where um, on the one hand they were exhibiting Ben Shan, and on the other hand they were exhibiting de Kooning. And, and that I think really succinctly um, spells out their, their two strategies, the two strategies of, of the US establishment in, in exporting, um, Modernist, because you've got to remember also that Ben Shan is a modernist, right? Ben Shan is not—he's 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 not, he's not, he's not um, pa you know, painting. He's not Andrew Wyeth. He's not painting photorealistic paintings. No, these, but these is it like is uh, my 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 take on on Ben Shan is like he is toward this socialism. Is it to to me sometimes reminding me German new objectivity to some extent. He's, he's to worse. an extent, I think it is yeah. kind of like new. It's like a kind of. It's a kind of a sentimental new objectivity, right? It's uh, I don't know. It's it's um, like a pastoral new objectivity. Yeah, some sort, right? Right? Yeah. Right, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and also, it, it doesn't. It, he doesn't really. He doesn't really um, like emphasize the grotesquerie of capitalism. Oh, what about the Vanzetti's painting? For I'm just thinking about that mm -hmm. painting in particular. There was a bit of like. 
perhaps grotesqueness, but yeah, yeah, I see what you are saying. Um, well, it, it, like often his work, I mean, maybe he, maybe he did, but often his work seems to be, you know, um, seems to provide like, pay, pains to the to the working class. He seems to valorize the working class um, rather than try and exemplify, you know, the the grotesque situation. Yes. You know, yeah. But but in this exhibition, I remember that I was reading in the book. You particularly mentioned that they they find this like as a, like a light critique of the U.S. and showing that how they are you know open society even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you finding that them, cute. Right? That was you interesting. Can, right? Yeah, but you can only criticize them within the logic of capitalism, right? Yeah, exactly. so, so you know, yeah. so um, it's like you know we we, we you know that this is quite telling, right? In, in terms of the image of a protest or the image of the quelling of a um, of a strike, um, right? Because there was um, there's also another another really I, sh I should have I should have I should remember this. But there's um, it's Philip uh, painted by Philip Evergood, right? So Philip Evergood, it's painted by Philip Evergood called an American tragedy, um, um, and it depicts the brutal quelling of a strike at steel mill. And um, so it's a picture of, if I remember correctly, it's a picture of a policeman with his baton raised above his head, and there's a, there's a there's a strong striker, you know, just just opposing him, um, with his wife behind him protecting her. And it's just a vision. It's a vision that there's then there's people being beat up behind them and stuff. You know, it's just a big melee. Um, and. It was purchased, you know, it's in the collection of a millionaire investment banker called Armand Earth, right? Um, you know, so, and and he's, he doesn't, this guy doesn't oppose capitalism, right? But he could, dis he could disapprove of, of the, quell the brutal quelling of a strike, right? You know, so I think that's a very, very, very indicative example, uh, right? So um, um, this, this art can be exported, especially to Italy, um, because as, as we might get on to talking about, or I'll just say now, right, that the, the, the art that was exported to Paris was very much an effort to prove that, you know, in, in both cases, in both cases, it was, it was an effort to prevent, um, um, to convince leftists to, 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 not, to, to, to not align with the Soviet Union, right? But these are two countries where communist parties still, still, Held a lot of power in their in their governments, right? Um, but while while it, while while in France, um, they're trying to prove that they're that they're not only economically and militarily superior, but they are culturally on superior, right? Like, look, uh, look, 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 that's why they chose that's why they chose abstract expressionism, right? As as this, this artwork in the in the in the lineage of modernism, which was previously found its locus in, in Paris, right? And, and of course, a lot of, a lot of the, the famous, the fa a, lot, a, lot of the, a lot of the Parisian modernist artists um, were, were, were communists. Picasso was a communist, right? Um, so that's that. But in Italy, they, they calculated that people would um, res respond more to the work of a social realist, right? So yeah, that was the, you know, and I'd say you can criticize Criticize uh, um, 
you can criticize the excesses of you know the class system here but you know um this work does not um actually criticize necessarily fundamentally criticize capitalism even though many of the artists of course were were communists um mm-hmm. by all, but 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 by no means not all of them right um So maybe yeah. that's a good segue to 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 talk about Adorno, right? Like the difference between these two types of content, like Inhalt, Geha, and how how you you tackle this uh, and you know in, in respond to both like Adorno's criticism uh, and also Greenberg's, uh, and that you you claim that's very much Greenberg's criticism. Uh, To, to some extent, you know, uh, works along the same line with perhaps the other knows about this, you know, the reputation negation of the first former and the, and and the working. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, so I think this is, this is I, I, let's see let's see how I how I how I could address um, this. This is this is the central thesis of the of the book, right? Um, So um, my argument essentially is that um, as um, what Greenberg sees as quality, what he calls quality, or because he only really has the schematic model of um, of the negation of representational content. Um, 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 in these schematic essays, right, where he, where he tries to write a schematic account of it, usually it's just everyday art criticism, you know. And um, I argue that what he sees in artworks um, as, you know, what, what what appeals to him in artworks is um, what Adorno would refer to as the non-identical, right? That which um, is you know the negative of what is the case right does, does that make sense um you know, this, this is this is quite difficult to to um to to summarize but um yeah um yeah i guess um uh if we um like you mentioned there you mentioned there you mentioned the um Yeah, um, you mentioned the, the distinction between Inhalt and Gehalt, right? Um, yeah. So Inhalt is um, so this is this is a distinction. Um, this is a distinction which Adorno inherits from Goethe and Schiller, um, right? And so um, Inhalt is the meaning of a work of art which can be paraphrased. Right, this is the meaning of a work of art, which we translate into concepts. And Gehalt is—it's um, kind of like the unitary import of the work. It's—it's—it's it's, it's kind of the non-paraphrasable import, or the import of a work which um, requires second reflection, um, whose meaning must must be mediated. You know, it is—it is, it is a—and a, a, I. Kind of, I argue that um, for Greenberg, um, the determinate negation of inhalt 
which is to say the determinate negation of, of, of elements which can be decisively paraphrased um, has this Gehalt, right? This Gehalt. And I argue that this Gehalt is where the where where we can still locate abstract expressionism's um, you know ra radical resistance to the status quo. Um, so yeah, and again, that's that's the <clears throat> generally I guess that's the best way to summarize that. Hopefully, um, yeah. I, so yeah, I, I want to talk more about Adorno, but I, I think that would be a miss if we don't discuss also Merleau-Ponty and your reading of Merleau-Ponty through Adorno, because it stands out to me like I'm I'm not really well, you know educated about Merleau-Ponty, honestly. Uh, I, 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 the one reason perhaps is always I had this understanding of Merleau-Ponty uh, close to Heidegger, perhaps. And maybe that's one of one Well, reason. I mean, I mean, there's a, I, wrote, I wrote a journal article. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah. About... That's, that, the article is in my reading list. Uh, but yeah, but that might be interesting if you can talk a little bit about Merlo, your 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 approaches to Merleau Ponty and how this his his critique of uh, ocular centricism and this importance of the study of this multi. Okay, well, I think yeah. I think so, um, what's interesting about Merleau Ponty is I kind of think that he. So as I said earlier, my reading of Merleau Ponty is far more tendentious than my reading of Adorno. I think like my reading of Adorno is pretty much. Um, you know, a standard reading of Adorno, um, where it's a standard reading of Adorno in a certain lineage, in the lineage of Andrew Burry and Jay Bernstein. Um, but my, yeah, my reading of Merleau-Ponty reads Merleau-Ponty as providing an account of the reception of art, which um, corresponds with Adorno's account of the production. Of art, right? And this isn't. This is. This is not a. Um, this is not a parallel. The parallels between the two thinkers are not. It's not something that's gone unnoticed. I mean, I, in the book, I, I cite. I, no one's really unpacked it to the extent that um, I do. I don't think, and <laughs> which I go on to do in my in the article I published uh, back in twenty. I think it was last year actually. It came out, but I wrote it. You know how it is. <laughs> I wrote it long before, um, but uh, yeah. So for both of for both of them, it's um, you know, art. Um, in art, we have an experience wherein um, we are we are guided by the object in a way which um, not only not only um, not only. Uh, emphasizes the particularities of the object, also the particularity of the of the apprehending subject, right? Um, and that I think is that that's the that is the kind of that's the gist of it, and that's the and that's where in that that's where the oculocentrism, you know, the the um, when this kind of I, this this kind of um, corporeal this, this emphasis on the corporeal, right? It's an emphasis that the the cognitive is inextricable from the corporeal. Um, this is something which is which is, which, is, which is maybe not so ostensible in Adorno, but where a lot of work has been done to draw this out of Adorno. I, mean, I think it is quite obvious in Adorno, but for Merleau-Ponty, it's, it's his main thing. 
right? And um, I think it's actually interesting that you, that you bring up occultocentrism um, because this is a this is a major criticism of of Greenberg, as I talk about in the book, right? This is a major criticism of Greenberg is his oculocentrism. And um, like the, the, the Amelia Jones book, which I referred to, not Amelia Jones, her sister, Caroline A. Jones. But Amelia Jones also, also writes a similar critique of Greenberg, um, just not as, not as long, <laughs> but it's, it's called Eyesight Alone, right? Eyesight Alone. But actually, you know, I make the argument by Merleau-Ponty that um, we can read Greenberg also as um, a fundamentally, you know, someone who's who, who is attuned to the corporeal in the perception of art. Um, and then, so that, that so that that is that is chapter that is um, that is chapter five, and then in chapter six, Greenberg drops out a little bit. And um, I read Adorno on, alongside Merleau-Ponty in terms of um, what, um, in terms of Merleau-Ponty's um, late indirect ontology, right? So, um, so if Adorno famously is a um, vociferous critic of Heidegger, on the basis that Heidegger hypothesizes this being anterior to beings, right? And for Adorno, this does two things. Um, it, it reifies um, capitalism insofar as there is a fundamental, um, fundamental logic which subtends um, the um, experience of individual subjects and to which they must accede. And it also, also, but also incorporealizing this idea of, of, of being, he um, provides a, 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 a this false idea of a haven from the ratiocination of capitalism, right? So, so it's this, this idea of providing a kind of kind of um, falsely rustic and corporeal um, haven from capitalism, which nevertheless simply mirrors the dismissal of individual subjects by capitalism, right? Um, but Merleau-Ponty's ontology, which he develops once, once he renounces um, Marxism, unfortunately, but I, don't, I, don't, I think that's the, the, I think the, um, I think that you can, you can separate someone's philosophy from their politics, ultimately. Um, um, yeah, this is this is it's it's basically the idea of it's basically the idea of an ontology of, of, of an ontology without an anteriority, right? Um, so um, I've actually I've, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get some get some quotes out um, here. So um, so yeah, so Merleau-Ponty in um, his um, late unfinished work, which he, which he unfortunately died before he completed, The Invisible and the Invisible, um, he, um, as opposed to a, quote, philosophy that is installed in pure vision in the aerial view of the panorama for which, quote, there can be no encounter with another, 
Merleau-Ponty calls for perception which, quote, receives its incitement from its content and is thus, quote, implicated in the movement and does not view it from above. So in this, Merleau-Ponty details general intercorporeity, which he terms the flesh, in which subjects are also objects, in which those, quote, who see cannot possess the visible unless they are possessed by it. That is, unless by principle, according to what is required by the articulation of the look with the things, they are each one of the visibles, end quote. Um, and um, I, while this is often kind of read as um, a philosophical correlate to his embrace of liberalism, um, I think that there is a, um, a, distinct a distinct parallel with Adorno's famous passage in On Subject Object, when he talks about how the state of reconciliation would be neither, quote, the undifferentiated unity of subject and object or their hostile antithesis. Rather, it would be the communication of what is differentiated. Only then would the concept of con communication as an objective concept come into its own. The present concept is so shameful because it portrays what is, what is best, the potential for agreement between human beings and things. To the idea of imparting information between subjects according to the exigencies of subjective reason. In its proper place, even epistemologically, the relationship of subject and object would lie in a peace achieved between human beings as well as between them and their other. Peace is the state of differentiation without domination with the differentiated participating in each other. Now, um, I then, I, I, so I thus read Merleau-Ponty's indirect ontology, which it's crucial to say here, he exemplifies as being accessible through artworks. So I read it as a prefigurative ontology, which we can also read out of Adorno's aesthetic theory when he talks about the experience of artworks, which provide this semblance, this semblance of an experience of otherness, wherein both the subject and the object um, receive their due. In, in a way which doesn't happen under the status quo, where everything is reified in terms of the reproduction of capital. Right. Um, so that, yeah, that is the decisive parallel between, yeah, that, that is, that's how I read the Dawn and Umbrella body together, I guess, right? So I read them in terms of having very similar aesthetic theories with the Dorno is mainly production focused with Melaponte is mainly reception focused, but both of them have aesthetic theories wherein the subject is guided by the object in a dialectical reciprocity. And then I um, argue that their aesthetic theories both um, prefigure um, a reconciled world. Um, and for Adorno thus, he always emphasized how, you know, it, it, it then all the more emphasizes how our world is unreconciled, right? Because you got to bear in mind for Doris, this is always semblance, this is always semblance. So it always emphasizes all the more how our world is not reconciled, right? But but yeah, so that is my that is my my fusion of Adorno and Malaponti as it were, or or generative reading, the generative reading of the two. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, if I remember it correctly, like Meloponti had this essay on. Uh, Cezanne, uh, Cezanne's uh, Saint-Victoire, 
Suzanne Stout, um, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I talk about that in the in the book. And I also, I also, I also talk about that in the book how um, there's a lot of parallels between um, Suzanne Stout and Greenberg's reading of Suzanne, and that, that Greenberg was almost almost definitely informed by um, Suzanne Stout because it received translation and partial review um, a few years before before. Oh, the same. Oh, I don't know where, I can't remember when it was exactly, but um, yeah. Okay. Um. So, is there anything that we you want to address? Because I want to also, um, as a final question, I want to ask you about you know the current book project that you're doing. But before moving on, I, that, don't, I don't have a current book. Project. I'd like to have a current book project. Did you see something about? I I don't have a current book project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually have I actually have a sequel I actually have a sequel of sorts coming out um, in, in journal article form to this book um, it's an article about um, Greenberg Duchamp and, a and Adrian Piper um, oh that's interesting yeah it, it, it's from the proceedings of a panel um, that I did for the Association of Art Historians Conference in London um, last year. And they're trying to look for a special issue. They're trying to look for a journal which publish it as a special issue. But basically it's, um, it's a, it's a, um, um, it's a, it's a reading of Adorno's dismissal of, 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 of postmodernism uh, via Duchamp and a kind of um, argument that um, Greenberg misreads um, postmodernism. Um, yeah, it, it, it's an argument that uh, that Adorno misreads. That, that no, Adorno, Adorno's not not present in this one. He's present as a spectre, but I don't actually um, I actually talk about um, Adorno in it. But yeah, it's it's kind of a the argument that. Um, um, uh, um, it's it's yeah it's, it's a reading of, of 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 Duchamp as a Greenbergian, and um, an argument that Greenberg misreads postmodernism and the postmodernism or certain elements of postmodernism were more Greenbergian than that both they and Greenberg allowed. Um, yeah, to, to me it sounds a bit, uh, if if I'm not mistaken, to Thierry Dudu's. Uh, it's it's it's, it's kind of a, yeah it's a kind of dialogue with Thierry Dudu as well. This this. Mm -hmm. um, this essay, but I, I have to go over it again. Actually, I haven't read it for a while, but because um, it, it's always the way with these, with these, with these articles, they just take so long to come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, we're looking forward. Uh, and do you want to? Yeah, um, thank you. Then, yeah, go ahead. Um, how much? How much time do we have? Oh, uh, we are almost, you know, about the end of the. But we might have you know, a couple of few minutes if you want to. Um, you know, cover the discuss any you know remaining. I know, yeah, I remember <laughs> because um, there is a lot in the book. I, I'm skipping. Tons yeah, of no, I, I remember because you wanted to talk about about Kant, but maybe there's no no time for that. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 quite interested in that. Um, maybe we can wrap wrap up in you know a few minutes. Can can be? I mean, it's it's difficult. Like like summarizing Kant in just a few minutes, just like yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess, I guess, 
My reading, my, my, I, I think the count's quite crucial in this, right? Because um, a lot of people, um, a lot, there's a lot of art theory which um, writes off Kant via Greenberg, funnily enough. Like there's a lot of um, art theory which is definitely, they've definitely never read Kant, right? But they, 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 so they have, they have, it's funny, they have this kind of reified, they've never really read Greenberg either. So they have this image of Greenberg as this like bloodless medium specific guy who dismisses everything in art, which isn't, which isn't medium specific, which isn't even true. I mean, we didn't get into this, right? But he, he actually did not like artworks which schematically emphasize their medium specificity, right? He liked, he liked, he had this idea of art, authentic art in a dialogue wherein Medium specificity was emphasized, but not intentionally. But anyway, so you have these 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 critics who who hate Green, who have this reified concept of Greenberg, which he which he did grow into. Right, he he got lazy and lazy and old and drunk and became a um, became this guy. But they have this, there's, 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 there's this bogeyman of Greenberg, who is this um, this guy who dismisses everything in art, which uh, isn't. Which isn't medium specific, medium specific, and then they read this thing that um, Greenberg famously wrote, where he said that um, where he says, um, you know, as I'll get the actual quote up, I'll get the actual quote up, I'll find it. Um, um, I identify it's in it's in modernist painting. He says I identify modernism with the intensification or with exact almost the exacerbation of the self-critical tendency that began with the philosopher Kant. The essence of modernism lies, as I see it, in the use of characteristic methods of a discipline to criticize the discipline itself, not in order, to, not in order to, to subvert it, but in order to entrench it more firmly in its area of competence. Kant used logic to establish the limits of logic, and while he withdrew much from its old jurisdiction, logic was left all the more secure in what they remained to it. Modernism criticizes from the inside through the procedures themselves of that which is being criticized. Um, Modernism used art to call attention to art. The limitation that constitute the medium of painting, the flat surface, the shape of the support, the properties of the pigment came to be regarded as positive factors and were acknowledged openly, right? So in this analogy, Greenberg is assimilating modernist art with the cognitive judgments, which do have determinate concepts. And in this sense, if Greenberg is criticized as Kantian, it's in terms of, um, Kant's assertion, the first critique, that thoughts without content are empty, intuitions without concepts are blind, right? So he seems to be talking about the Kant of the first critique in that sense, right? And, um, but all the other time he refers to Kant in his, in his criticism, he's referring to Kant in terms of not determinate judgments, but aesthetic reflective judgments, right? And, um, and of course, aesthetic reflective judgments, they are so-called disinterested because, um, and, in the, and in this sense, they are criticized by art theory, um, but they nonetheless, you know, are guided by the objects rather than subsuming concepts. And that's, that, you know, that's where I, that's why I draw, where I draw, draw out of it. I think, you know, Greenberg's, Greenberg's often read in, in terms of um, the first critique because of that one comment he made but actually you should understand in terms of the third critique and that paves the way for understanding it in you know the sense, the sense that I've talked about I mean that's a very that's a very that's a very um, um, 
short um, answer which just, just does no justice to my argument or anyone I've mentioned this argument. But <laughs> but I think that was quite adequate. I, I, I really like that you mentioned like very much, it's not quite just about refight this medium specificity. It's, it's to my understanding, it's kind of imminent critique, right? It's, it's working on itself. This, this kind of... Un- it's an imminent critique, right? But um, for Greenberg, it's not, even, yeah, it's not even an imminent critique that um, the artists are necessarily aware of, right? And, and, and this, this is how we, you know... And that's why, you know, he, he didn't like the minimalists, generally, because the minimalists set out to emphasise the limits of their artworks, right? Um, and he didn't like them. Uh, he, he, when, 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 when Alvac became reified, you know, when it, when, it, when, when it hardened into mannerism, as he puts it, he got into, like, Jules Olitsky and stuff, which, are, uh, you know, they're not, they're not fun. <laughs> say what you will about them, but he, he, he didn't want to, uh, he didn't get into um, art, which was emphatically media-specific, right? He, 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 yeah, he got into colour field painting and all this stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was great. Uh, actually, thank you, Daniel, for you know coming on to this podcast. It was you know a pleasure, and it was also fun. Uh, yeah, thank you for the conversation.